Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. It's really great to uh, see you here. My name's Carl. I, uh, I kind of lead in the church, but I haven't been here for a few weeks, so... Um, but I'm back. I am so back. And uh, I'd, uh, I'd love it if you'd turn with me to uh, the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 17. And we're going to teach in a series that we've called Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. And I have to tell you, there has just yesterday a new line appeared on my CV that I'm really, really proud of. Um, you know, I'm proud of a lot of things. I've done a lot of things this summer. I've... Um, I have stood on the, uh, I'm not quite what you should call it, the pitch or the field of Turner Field Baseball Ground in Atlanta and pledged allegiance to the flag. I don't know why I did that, I have no idea. But um, that was going on where it was July the 4th, there were lots of fireworks, just got very emotional. And I'm like, so I've done that kind of thing. I preached this summer to 5,000 people in a field, in a tent. But I am most proud of what happened yesterday. I performed at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. <laughs> there is a picture of me. You, know, you might not think that I performed here because this is, you can see me. I'm the tall, handsome guy holding the unicycle at the back there. We were, we were, we were at um, uh, the square here on the Royal Mile and that is mullet man in the foreground that you can see with the kind of flicky hair thing. And uh, he was, I mean, he was great. He was fun. It was good. The kids were there. And I'm obviously quite a big guy, so I got chosen. You know, uh, he, he said that we were a hard audience. I said, you really don't know what a hard audience is. <laughs> I'm a pastor. You know, I know, I, I know a difficult audience. And uh, we had that thing going on. I was, I was his willing assistant. Well, I wasn't that, well, yeah, I was very willing, actually. I really was rather keen to get involved. How many of you love the festival and the buzz and the vibe and the, the color of it? And the, I just love it. I, I, some of you just not going to put your hand up, whatever are you, whatever I say. Whatever. We are British. No hands here. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love it. I absolutely love the, the vibrance, the color, the vibe, the, the, the crush, the noise. And that there's, but there's a part of me that also hates it. I kind of a love-hate thing. You know, the stuff that I get handed, I think I really wish I hadn't been handed that. The stuff that I see that I really wish I hadn't seen and the stuff that I hope my girls don't see. And I'm thinking, what is all this kind of stuff? And some of the religious stuff that goes on, I really can't stand. If I'm honest, I'm sorry if you're here and you're doing something. You know, don't be offended. It's okay. It's not you, everybody else, not you. But... You know, I, I was there yesterday, and as I was walking, there was this marching, there were the marching bands, the loyalists were marching with the drums and the pipes, and something in me, that just, I hate that. I don't blame the individuals for doing what they're doing, and, but there's the something that it portrays deep down about what they think God is about and what God is saying, and, and I hate that kind of stuff. So you see guys with placards on saying, God hates gays, God hates you, God hates sinners, Hell is real, and it's a very long time, and I think that's a highly positive message for the church to be giving. I hate it, and I, I hate it when I see churches shut and closed and sold for other stuff, and 
I hate some of the things I see going on. I mean, there's, there's, stuff, I, there's stuff about Edinburgh, the pain of Edinburgh, the darkness of Edinburgh, the stuff I love about it and the stuff I hate about it and the stuff that I find really difficult and the stuff that gets me angry. If I'm really honest, in my best moments, I think I get angry. I'm going to take a look at a passage of Scripture. If you turn there to Acts chapter 17, where Paul gets angry, I think I get angry about the way in which the church postures towards the world. It really upsets me. It upsets me when, when for the most part, for many, the church is just offending the world. You know, we're known for what we're against. You know, we're judgmental, we're hypocritical, we're anti-gay, we're Islamophobic, we're just kind of, we know, everyone knows what we're against and what we don't like, and so we just... We're just offending, and there are others of us who are just defending God. You know, we're coming up with a clever apologetic for God and why he exists and, and why he's doing what he's doing, as if God needs defending. Really? Kind of a weird thing, isn't it? That God needs defending in some way. Or, or we're just blending with the world. We, we look nothing different from the world. We're just having at everything. We're just consuming everything the world consumes without without any kind of filter. And and we're not making any difference in this world. We're not being the salt of the earth. We're not being the light of the world. And when we are not fulfilling the commission that God has placed in our lives and in our hearts, and some of it just makes me sad. Some of it gets me angry, but it gives me a strong reaction. And I think that's why we're studying in the back end of the Acts of the Apostles, because we stand on the shoulders of giants, people who've gone before us, who've shown us a way. We stand on the shoulders of giants who, who, when you begin to read the Acts of the Apostles, you find a bunch of guys who were fishermen and peasants and who were tax collectors and ex-terrorists who Jesus handed the whole thing onto, who started off scared and frightened and hiding away and ended up with a movement that changed the world to more than 50% of the Roman Empire by 300 AD were following Jesus. It's crazy stuff. How did they posture towards this world? How did they navigate? How did they demonstrate Jesus? How did they embody the love of God to people? And so Kay did an absolutely brilliant job last week, and if you weren't here, you need to, to listen to it, apart from the fact that she invented a word, framily, for which I am mortally embarrassed, and I apologize. We have had disciplinary words over this past week about that. That's okay. We're, we're okay now. We're back in relationship. But, you know, you just shouldn't make up words, Kay. Just think, you never, you never, you never catch me doing that. And... And so we, we, we're beyond Acts 6. But what happens in Acts 16 is this, is that Paul, the, the greatest pioneer apostle dude ever, I mean, he is the missionary par excellence. He's the guy that we say, this is the guy who knows how to do this stuff. And he gets to Philippi as he gets into Europe for the first time. And he finds in Philippi he's got to change his whole strategy because before then, what he would do is he'd go to a synagogue and he'd preach to the already converted Jews and he'd say, I want you to understand who the Messiah is and this is how it works. And, and he gets to Philippi, there's no synagogue. And he begins to work out something. Not everyone's going to go to synagogue. Not everyone's going to go to church. But everyone is in a family. 
Everyone is in some kind of relationship. And the gospel starts to spread family to family to family to family to family. And it's viral. And before you know it, through this vehicle of people in community with one another, loving God and loving people, the good news of Jesus is spread throughout the world. You can't contain it. And so Paul learns this thing. And then weirdly, 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 Acts 17, we find him in Athens on his own. <laughs> How does that work? He's, he's, he's learned this thing about family, and he's, he's, got, he's got his team together. He's got family on mission, and suddenly he's on his own. But here's the thing. He's so grown up and understood the values of family that he's still carrying family stuff, family values, family principles, family missional orientation as he reaches Athens. And he starts to demonstrate for us what it looks like to posture well to a city that's broken. Let's check this out. Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples built by hands and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that time, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman called Damaris, and a number of others. Let's just pray together, and let's come around this word. Father, we 
just ask your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us posture really well towards the world that we live in, towards the people that we're around, towards the people that you love in this world, and towards the community that you've called us to. Would you speak to our hearts now? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, here's how my logic goes. I kind of think that Paul's as good as it gets outside of Jesus Christ as far as a model of what it means to be a pioneer missionary and posturing well towards the world is concerned. So what I want to do is I want to model myself after him. I want to find ways in which I personally and we as the community of God's people can posture in this kind of way. So I'm praying that God will soften my heart. That my heart will be in time with the heart of God because that's what's going on, I think, for Paul here. Look at this. Paul is walking around a broken and messed up city. And we're told that his heart is grieved. The word um, used in the English could also be translated distressed. It means to irritate to an extreme measure. He's like, he's like walking around Edinburgh and he's going, you know, really, I mean, I'm not articulating it, but it's really, really getting to me because this is really irritating. Something about the way in which we're living, there's something about the way in which we're walking, something about the way in which we're spending, there's something about the way in which we're speaking that is kind of grating. It's hmm. The word has the same root as a Hebrew word that's translated in Deuteronomy 1.34 when describing God as being angry. So it's almost as if Paul is pained and irritated and angry at what he sees. Why? he sees people who are created in the image of God rejecting God as God. And he sees a society that's set up to ignore the claims of God. And it's killing them and it's killing us. And I don't think he's, hmm, because he's offended for God because I think God's kind of bigger than that. I think God can be offended for himself if he wants to be. I don't think I have to protect the honor of God. I don't think I have to stand between God and people and go, okay, I got your back, God. It's okay. Because I think God's bigger than that. But I think he's upset and pained and his heart is broken because he sees people created in the image of God destroying their lives. He sees people created in the image of God who know no better. He sees people who are born for purpose and living purposeless lives. He sees people who are born for wisdom and living stupid lives. He sees people born for love and living lives searching for love in all the wrong places. He sees people born for with incredible potential not fulfilling their potential because they've been denied this relationship with God. And he goes, hmm, this is killing me. This is killing me. And he starts to walk and he starts to talk and he starts to listen to where people are at. (coughs) This is really, really important. Because so many of us start from where we're at, don't we? I want things to work according to my agendas. I want the message to work according to my message. I want to start in my place and I want to finish in my place. I want it to work comfortably for me. But Paul starts with where people are at. He sees religious people. And he refuses to dismiss them. He just sees religious people. 
You know, people who are, I suppose people who are trying to work out their relationship with God by doing particularly good things and by living according to the letter of the law, and you kind of get the feeling that God might be saying, why are you playing that game? I'm not playing that game. I'm playing a grace game. I'm playing a love game and I'm playing a mercy game and you're playing a, if I do this and do this and I stack that up and make that happen, then somehow I can build a relationship with you. And the problem is this, it's not only destroying you if you try and live like that, it's destroying other people who begin to believe that a relationship with me is built like that and they're rejecting it because they can't do that. He sees religious people. And he sees ordinary people, the scripture says. People who are just kind of culture victims. They're not thinking about this stuff, they're just sucking it up and they're doing what everyone else is doing. The authority of their life is not the word of God or a relationship with God, With the authority of their life is what everyone else is doing. So we're just doing it because everyone else is doing it and that must be okay because everyone else is doing it. If everyone else is having fun, we're gonna have fun. We're not relating it in any way to an authority of God and it's breaking his heart. And then he sees the philosophers. We're told here the Epicureans. The Epicureans were, were atheistic materialists. They, they said, well, there's no God anyway. I don't believe in God. And so all we've got is what we can feel and what we can see and what we can touch, so we may as well have at it their highest virtue was pleasure. You may as well just have as much pleasure as you want in life. Go for it. You know, party till you puke. It doesn't matter as long as you don't hurt anybody else. You may as well have a, does that sound familiar? Athens, about 2,000 years ago in Edinburgh today, and just going for it, and it's going to lead no place good because you find that you, you get the biggest pleasure and then you find there must be another pleasure and it's not going to satisfy you because it doesn't satisfy anybody else and then you, your life begins to explode and suffocate and then there were the Stoics. Stoics were on the other side of the equation. They were the pantheists. They, they, they didn't believe there was no God. They believed everything was God. Everybody was God. God was everywhere, and God was here, and he was in you, and it was there. And, and, and uh, their highest virtue was virtue. You had to just suck it up and be good and do good things, and, and there was no hope in it. And so Paul's heart breaks, and he's grieved. And in Edinburgh, we have all of that, and far more. People running to realize dreams that will bring no satisfaction. People building lives that are doomed to failure and collapse. People standing on shifting sand that's going to suffocate them. People enduring life <coughs> when they were supposed to live life in all its fullness. Father, Father, break our hearts. Please. For a people who are more lost than they know and closer to being found than they realize. Father, would you break our hearts? Because unless you break our hearts, nothing's going to happen. If it just becomes a rant from a preacher who's got a sore throat, and, and then like two days later, we continue to feel as if we ought to do something because we feel guilty about it, and three days later, we forget about it. It's not going to change anything, but Father, would you change my heart? I, I, I continually think that God needs to do a number on my heart, maybe on yours as well. Because I, I sort of arrogantly think that I know where people need to start and I know where they need to get to. But I've got an agenda for how to teach people the gospel and how to get people into here and how to get people saved. And actually, I don't know. 
I know the answer is Jesus. I know he loves people. I know he has a plan. I know he's working out his plan. But I think I need my heart broken and my heart malleable and my heart available to what he wants to do and, and amongst who he wants to do it. I think I need to be listening to what the Spirit is saying. See, sometimes I think I'm far more interested in my reputation and people liking me and not thinking I'm an idiot or a fool or a failure than listening to what God is doing and my heart breaking for their lostness and their brokenness and their hopelessness. God, give me a malleable heart. Would you make me angry? Would you make me angry? No, not passive. Please, not passive. Would you make me angry? God, would you make some of us angry? Would you make some of us kind of revolt inside about the injustice in this world? Would you make some of us revolt inside about people who are beautifully loved and created in the image of God, who are on their way to a Christless eternity because no one stopped, no one cared, no one stooped, no one loved, everyone just blended? Would you just make me angry for those things? See, what's going to happen is when God makes you angry, he gives you a complaint that settles in your heart to such an extent and if you pray into it and press into it, then what God does is he gives you a vision of what could be rather than what is wrong. And when you get a vision of what could be, he begins to bring people around you who have the same complaint and the same vision. It's called a team. And then he gives you a strategy. Usually the strategic people aren't the visionary people. They have different gifts and abilities. And suddenly you've got something that can change the world. Let me tell you what happens. What I think God wants to do, I think he wants to take my malleable heart and beautifully collide it with a whole stack of other people's malleable hearts and bring about something incredible for the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you this, in all the many years, I'm older than I look, I know I look 25, but actually I'm older. In all the many years that I've been leading church and pastoring people, I have never known a time where there is a generation that are more malleable and open to the good news of Jesus than this rising generation. Because what's happening is they're rejecting a whole bunch of the values which are deceitful values of my generation. And they're saying, do you know what? We're really interested in mystery and story. We're really interested in the spiritual stuff. That's why they read Harry Potter and they watch Twilight stuff. Not because they're good movies or good, it's because they're interested in something beyond. They, they know there must be something more than this. They're really interested in not destroying the planet but saving the planet because they reckon, do you know what's happening? They're tapping into the fact that God is a God of mystery, of supernatural wonder. They're tapping into the fact that God is green, that he's interested in conservation. They're tapping into the fact that God is not interested in, 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 in obsessive secular materialism, that that is broken, that he's a simple, a simple God who wants a simple lifestyle for us. They're tapping into the fact that they're really keen on community you know, this is a generation rising up that are not really interested in just having Facebook friends. They actually want real friends. They want to talk. I mean, they're being suckered into living their life on screen, but actually they want to build relationships. They want to talk to people. They want to love people. They want to build community. They're tapping into the fact that God, in essence, in himself is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who he is. This, this growing generation of people are really passionate about justice and fairness and rightness. There's kind of a cry, a belly cry from a generation that says, we want things to be fair and we want things to be right. What's happening? They're tapping into the fact that God is a God of justice and rightness. And what's happening? God is setting a generation up for an encounter 
with him. That's what's going on. And what he's looking for is malleable hearts who will not start with where I want to start, but will start by listening to where people are at and introduce them to a God who loves them deeply, thinks they're amazing, has a plan for their lives, says, I can show you the way. God, give me a malleable heart. Give me a teachable spirit. And, and, and the other prayer that I pray is, uh, with Paul is, God, renew my mind. God, would you give me a confidence in who you are? Would you give me a confidence in what you do so that I'm not uh, flabbergasted when, when I'm encountering people who don't yet know you? you, have, you have you met my God? That's what Paul says. Have you, met, have you met my God? Have you met my God? Do you know who he is? Do you understand what he does? If you would just encounter my God, you wouldn't live the way you live. I'm not condemning you. You just wouldn't do so. Look, take a look. Paul says, look, whatever the issue is, <coughs> whatever your particular philosophy is, whatever your heartache is, this may sound controversial, so listen carefully. Whatever is happening in Gaza and Iraq and Syria, Whatever the financial crisis is, whatever the cancer is, whatever the heartache is, whatever the relational difficulty is, whatever, however simplistic and even crass it may sound, he still is the answer. He still is the answer. That's what Paul says. He's still the answer to all this stuff. 30,000 gods in Athens. 30,000. Paul says, he's the answer. All this stuff, all the things that you're thinking about, he's the answer. Look, verse 24 and 25, 26, 27, 28. Paul says he's the maker and he's the keeper. Paul says, have you met my God? You will never find your purpose and your peace and your place in life outside of him because you're a creation and he's the creator. That's how it works. You're never going to find your place outside of him. My God, have you met my God? Your life is only your life because he holds it and he keeps it. He's the sustainer of it. It's like if, if God takes his foot off the clutch of the world, the world stalls, it stops, kaput, finished. He holds your life now. You are alive because he is alive. You are alive because he is dynamic. You are alive because he's working right now. Have you met my God? Do you know him? My God is ruler. He's the boss. Now, I, I know you think right now that your government is the boss or the bank is the boss or the university is the boss or your parents are the boss or the sickness is the boss or, 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 or the institution is the boss, but whatever it is, but boss, no, 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 you missed, you missed the point. Right now, my God is conscious head over all things. He made it, he keeps it, he rules over it, he is God. And then Paul says, let's not talk. Any more abstract philosophy just for a moment. He is near. This God is not far from any of you. He's not far from you because he's the dad. We're all offspring of this God. He's the father of us all, all this stuff, all the power, all the creativity, all the starting, all the keeping, all the, all the rulership, all that stuff, it comes in the skin of a daddy. And he draws people. That's what he's doing right now. I mean, you may think you came here because you 
part of the fringe or you came here because you come here every week or you came here because your friend dragged you or you came here because you couldn't think of anything better to do on a Sunday or whatever it was, you, whatever decision you make in your head about why you came here, but it's not true. You came here because the Holy Spirit drew you here. I mean, you never meet anybody. You just don't. Who Father God doesn't love, who Jesus didn't die for, and the Holy Spirit isn't trying to win. That's just the reality of it. He is wooing, wooing, I love that word. He is wooing you. I think we should bring wooing back. How nice is that? If I was a, I was going to say something sexist there. Probably shouldn't. Let's stop that right now. I think wooing is a really nice thing. You know, dating or stepping out. Well, that's okay or whatever it is, you know, I'm going out with. Wouldn't you like to be wooed? It's kind of very Jane Austen. But it's also very Holy Spirit. He's wooing you. He's drawing you. He's brought things into your life to convince you that you need God and you need a relationship with God. And he's, he's drawing you. He's convincing you. He's bringing you. He's brought people into your life. That's what he does. This God is drawing you. God, give me a malleable heart. And Father, give me a confident mind in you and in the story of God that I might call other people to you because people are lost without you. And Father, give me a boldness of walk. I love Paul because he just doesn't care. You know, I wish I was like that. Paul, you're a babbler. You're an idiot. What are you talking about? And he keeps going because he's so passionate about this God and he knows that, that if you could just meet God, everything would change. And he knows that life lived outside of a relationship with God is doomed to some kind of destructive life and behavior. It's limiting. It's not gonna, it's not gonna enable you to live life in all its fullness. And so he keeps talking and he keeps provoking. You know, if I was Paul, I'd be very tempted to say, do you know what? I've been doing a big ministry trip. I've been traveling and preaching. I've nearly lost my voice. I'm tired. My team's not with me. Do you know what? I'm just going to hang out in Athens. <clears throat> Athens was like the kind of philosophical capital of the age. I'm going to listen to some great dudes speaking. I'm going to go and eat moussaka. I'm going to smash some plates. I'm going to have some sunshine. It's going to be great. Just no one else is judging me. I can, I can sleep in, you know, whatever it is, you know. But Paul, no, no, no. Because something in his heart is just beating passionately for God and beating passionately for people outside of a relationship with God. So he just can't help it, but he impacts people with his life all the time and he's always walking and he's always talking and he can't help this kind of thing. God, would you make me live in boldness? Would you help me to live in boldness? Because I'm such a wimp and a wuss. Would you help me live in boldness? Do you know, I love, I love the stories of taking it to the streets I love it. I, I, actually, I wish I'd been able to be there. I had, we had a family staying with us this weekend, and we took, as you can see, photos were on the screen. I was at the fringe and uh, performing, actually. <laughs> it's my best side. I was doing that. And, and we did all that kind of stuff, and I was doing that. But I met a whole team of the guys who were doing treasure hunting, and I walked up to, uh, and Claire was there, weren't you, Claire? And uh, Claire, was, Claire was in the group, and, uh, and I said to the guys, um, have you got me on your list? It's always all about me. Have you got, have you got me on your list? And they said, no. No. And then one of the girls, Claire, says, uh, oh, yeah, 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 no, 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 whoa, 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 wait a minute. I think we might have you on the list. I think I've got double denim looking me up and down disapprovingly. 
And then she says, oh, no, 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 we decided that was inappropriate. <laughs> Can't believe it. I, abs I love, I absolutely love the whole concept of doing the kind of treasure hunting thing, taking it to the streets, and I love the healing on the street stuff. But do you know what I really long for? I long for the day when we don't do that. Long for the day when we don't have training nights and to, to, to go and do something which is programmatic. I love the, the day when we don't have lists of things because it just is flowing out of us. It's flowing out of us because our hearts are beating in time with Father God and our hearts are breaking for people that we're meeting all over the place. And as a natural overflow of our hearts and lives and our confidence in who Jesus is, he's the savior of the world. He's the ruler and he's the maker and he's the keeper and he's not gonna give up on you and he is near to you and he's touching your life. We can't help but overflow with the overflow of our lives. Jesus Christ, I long for that in our community because you see, I have a feeling that that's what God is doing with us. There you go, that was... Uh, Salute to that. I have a feeling that's what God is doing with us. I have a feeling that's the kind of community that God is building. A community whose heart beat in time with God. A community whose minds are confident in who God is. A community whose hands are dirty and whose feet run. And they can't help but share the truth of who Jesus is. I love it. And on the streets and in our workplaces. And in our communities and in where we live and, 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 and everywhere we go, when we see homeless people, we, we, we're not just talking platitudes to them, but we're demonstrating the power of God and the love of God and the nearness of God and the availability of God because God is near. God is very near. Here's one further thought. If you've ever read this passage of Scripture and you've wondered, you know, people preach on this thing all the time, and they preach on it probably far more eloquently than I do, on Acts chapter 17, and say this is an incredible encounter with the postmodern world, and how do we engage with people who are thinking a whole bunch of different things, and all that kind of stuff. The thing they always puzzle over, why does Paul have such limited success when he's in Athens? And he preaches this most incredible thing and he teaches this stuff and he's involved in people's lives. Why, why is it that the back end of this passage of Scripture, just one or two people believe and a few people ask for a further conversation? I mean, that's not his experience in Thessalonica and it's, it's not his experience in Philippi. It's not his experience later on in Corinth. It's not his experience in Ephesus. What, what's going on in Athens? That, and so my question, my, I, I don't think it's the message. I think the message is amazing. It's a God in heaven who loves you. He's appointed times and places. I think that message is amazing. Is it his philosophy? Is it the way? No, I don't think it's that. I think it's this. Paul is on his own in Athens. And when he gets to Corinth, suddenly the gang join him. And loads of people get saved. And then when he gets to Ephesus, more of the gang join and more people get saved, and he stays there for ages, and it becomes kind of the model church for the next 300 years. I'll tell you what's happening. Paul is an incredible pioneer, but he needs his developers. Paul is an incredible disturber, but he needs the carers to come alongside. The apostle needs the prophets. The prophets need the evangelists. The evangelist needs the pastor teachers. That's what needs to happen, because God has ordained that we're supposed to be in community. <coughs> Which is not my way of saying you can't be effective on your own in the street. But it's my way of saying is you need one another. We need one another. The pastors need the preachers. And, and the people who are great at hospitality need the prayers. 
and the kids need the parents, and the parents need the kids. And, and the ones with energy and passion need the ones with wisdom and authority. And we need to walk together, and that's why we do communities. That, that, that's why we reach out in communities, because we can't do it together. Can't do it, well, we can do it together, that's the wrong way around, Carl. We can't do it alone. We can only do it together. So God, would you change my heart? And would you clarify my mind? And would you take my feet? And would you grab hold of my hands? And would you set me on fire for a world that is desperately in need of you? Because I want to burn. Would you make me angry? Would you disturb me? And then would you send me? Because I'm not going to settle for anything less than this city being transformed and this nation being changed in my lifetime. Let's pray together. One of the things that, <coughs> one of the things that we always say here is that, because we recognize that every preacher is very human, so one of the things that we always say and pray is that the Holy Spirit would blow away on the wind that which was fleshy and of the preacher, but would sink deep into our hearts that which was of the Holy Spirit for us. And we pray that in just a moment. But the other thing that's also true is that God will speak different things into different hearts because there are different needs and different passions and different problems and different difficulties, different personalities in this room. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. Do that thing. Blow by the wind of your spirit all the chaff away. And leave the stuff that is going to be fruitful for our lives. <clears throat>